Hey, good morning. And welcome to the fourth weekend service here at New Spring. Our series is called Fuel, and today's title is called Transformed. And if there's any church that knows about transformation, we know about that here at New Spring. Uh, because a lot of us, when we came here, we, we just did not imagine that we could have a relationship with God. When some of us came here, we weren't even sure we believed in God. Others of us that have bad experiences with religion, and we saw ourselves as unlikely candidates for ever having a close relationship with God, and yet it's happened. And when we look back on our lives, we understand a couple things. We understand, first of all, that tweaking didn't do where we, what we are now. We had to have a transformation. Self-improvement didn't bring us to where we are. God had to come into our lives and do what only he could do. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my life, I feel like an unlikely candidate for change. Because, I, to be honest with you, just, just keeping it real here, I can frustrate myself enough with my own behavior that if I'm not careful, I can actually come to the place where I can begin to question, can I really change? Or do I have to be the way I am all the time? So that's what we're going to be talking about here today. And of course, our series is called Fuel. And we're sort of drawing some comparisons with what we're dealing with, you know, in our culture today with, with our dependency upon fossil fuels and the questions that we have about fuel and green and all that kind of thing, the questions that we're dealing with there, when really we get down to it, those things are pretty minuscule when we think about what it's like in our lives. What are we running on? What's powering us? Are we, like we talked about last week, are we running on fossil fuels? Or spiritually speaking, are we running lean, clean, and green? Well, I introduced you last week to a new Springer who's a great friend of mine. His name is Jonathan Goodwin, and Jonathan is just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And one of the things that he's doing is, with the technology that he's teaching the world, he's showing how that we can take fuel vehicles, rather, that were not fuel efficient in the past and make them fuel efficient. You know, it's, it's, you know it, a Prius is a great thing, but I'll tell you, if you could have a Hummer that would get 27 miles a gallon, not pollute the atmosphere, and have, you know, 650 horsepower, that is just about as close as you can get to heaven for me. I just want you to know that without being in heaven. And Jonathan is doing that. In fact, out on the patio, I hope you get a chance on the main entry, there's a, a blue Hummer that Jonathan has done that fits the criteria I just gave you. It's got Texas license plates. I think it is a sign from God. I've been trying to tell Mary Alice that all morning. It is just, it's a God thing. But it is amazing what Jonathan is doing. And, and what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to watch an interview. This is Jonathan Hoover and Jonathan Goodwin as Jonathan talks about unlikely vehicles for transformation. Watch this. Well, Jonathan, I'm here standing with you in front of one of what could be the least fuel-efficient vehicles in the world as it is stock for a regular, how many is a seat? Five yeah, it's a people. five passenger, yeah. Okay, so 7,000 pounds. Cost per passenger fuel efficiency, we would say, is, is fairly high it's in this very, vehicle as it is stock. Very expensive. Actually, I, I started a process to correct that here in 2003 when the first H2 Hummer rolled out off the showroom floor in California. The first thing that happened is you had people there that were burning them down on the dealership road because they didn't understand why that a industry would put a 10 mile to gallon SUV into the marketplace. We have no room for that. We have a shortage of fuel. So uh, to fix the problem, I went to the industry that was making it and I looked at what else that they had to offer. And what they had was a engine that could run on uh, alternative fuels like biodiesel, ethanol, and stuff like that. So I decided, you know, the best way to fix the problem would be to uh, not reinvent the Hummer, but just change the core foundation 
in it to fix the problem. So, so what we do during the, the conversion process is we actually remove the old engine that used to get 10 miles to a gallon at 300 horsepower and we replace it with one that can break 27 miles to a gallon at 600 horsepower. So like you were saying, the first thing that we do is we go straight to the, the core of the problem. And that's where our focus of attention is, is changing the propulsion system out to make the vehicle more efficient. We do a transformation of old technology to new technology. That's where we get the gain in efficiency. And one of the byproducts when you make something more efficient is you end up with more power and more reliability and longevity. So you fix more than just one problem, you fix a, you know, a bunch of problems during the process. When you look at this vehicle, what I'm, what I'm so impressed with is that you see some potential that the average person would not see. What you see is the potential for it to go way faster, but rather than change the vehicle as a whole and strip it down of all this bulk, you go straight to the power source. To me, it's not the vehicle's fault that it's not efficient. It's the core ingredients that make the propulsion system that is the problem. You know, if you look at the, if you go out and buy a 2010 automobile, you'll see the most advanced, uh, you know, safety restraints and braking and uh, uh, sync radios and iPod and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you pop the hood on it, and there's 100-year-old technology that's never been changed. Well, that's the that's the core foundation of what it is that we transform uh, into something that's a lot better not only in performance and what we call thermal efficiency, but we can also take advantage of alternative fuels, fuels that we can have in the future. Talking to Jonathan Goodwin, in fact, just listening to him talk excites me about the future and possibilities. Um, he's been doing his work for a long time, but, but something happened two or three years ago that caused Jonathan Goodwin to come to the attention of a lot of people around the country. It was an MTV episode of Pimp My Ride. If that's a new show to you, it's just a, a reality show. I always put that quotations around any time I use the term reality show. But this is one where they take a vehicle, or you know, you'll see this sometimes for those of you who like to watch home house shows. They'll take something, a vehicle, a house that's you know got a lot of issues, and the experts will get their hands on it and they'll bring it to a place that's way beyond what it was at the beginning. And MTV's Pimp My Ride does that with automobiles. Well, this particular show was going to be on Earth Day. I think it was in 2007. And the creators of the show wanted to do what they normally did, but they wanted to do it with a, a way that would have appeared to have been environmentally friendly. So the story kind of goes like this, and this is where it starts having some parallels between the lives that you and I are living and what happened with the show. The particular car that they had selected was a 1965 Chevrolet. I think it was an Impala Supersport. But it was the rattiest looking car you ever saw in your life. In fact, I looked at it again this week, and it's got to be one of the worst looking cars of all time. The body was shot, the interior was just a wreck. I mean, the ignition was hanging down by a wire. I don't think that the kid that owned it could have gotten $50 for it. I don't think he could have gotten somebody to haul it off for $50. It, I mean, I mean that seriously, it was that bad. It's got to be one of the rattiest looking old cars you ever saw in your life. No value at all, really, no value at all from an antique perspective or anything. But the reason why this particular car was really important to this boy was that his older brother had passed it down to him. And not long after this, his, his older brother had done so, his brother was killed in an automobile accident. And so whenever this kid would sit in this car, be around this car, it was like a connection with his brother who had passed. And it meant a lot to him. And I guess the creators of the show found out about it, and it seemed like just the ideal car to bring in and, and to make over, the, the car to transform for this young boy for whom this car meant so much. 
Well, they did, they did the normal stuff that they do. They did you know, the exterior, they, the interior. They tricked it out. They put toys in it. But they, they wanted something very special for this car because of the episode of that uh, for Earth Day in 2007. And that's where they contacted Jonathan Goodwin. Could he put within this car a high-powered system that would be ecologically friendly and that would, would get great fuel economy? And, and Jonathan explained that, yes, he could. He took the job, and indeed, he did his magic, and the outcome was unbelievable. In fact, Jonathan, when he had explained to them the kind of power that it would have, some of the people at MTV were a little nervous about that because it was a reality show, and they wanted to make sure that there were not promises that could be fulfilled. But when the time came to demonstrate it, well, you can check it out on YouTube because it's all over YouTube. They took this 65 Chevrolet that Jonathan had, you know, had, had changed, the power source on, now it had an 850-horsepower engine. They lined it up with a Lamborghini, which is one of the fastest production cars in the world. And, and they, they raced them. And as Jonathan would say, they actually had to let the throttle off of the Chevrolet just to keep the Lamborghini in the picture. This 65 Chevrolet so dusted this Lamborghini, it was embarrassing. It was absolutely embarrassing. When Jonathan was finished with it, it would, it would go from zero to 60 in three and a half seconds and do the quarter mile in a little bit over 11. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but any car that can go zero to 60 in less than five, it's amazing, and 3.5 is just insane. But this is a 65 Chevrolet, you know, a car that was ratty, a car that should have been given up on, a car that if you saw it at the beginning, you would wonder, can it make it half, from halfway down the block to the corner? Now, the thing that amazed me about that transformation was that it happened in three stages. First of all, the, the, the creators of the show had to accept the car. It had to, it had to be chosen for this acceptance, and it had to be accepted. And then the second thing that had to happen was there was a process that had to take place in the shop as the car was taken from its ratty self to the vehicle that it would eventually become. And then there was that moment when it rolled out. And it was such a cool moment at the end of the show where this young man took a look at this car that now was worth so much. In fact, Dr. Dre was there. He saw it. He, ordered, he offered a quarter million dollars for this car. This car that nobody would haul away for $50 is now worth a quarter million. And when this boy saw the car, it was, it was amazing moments. He, he dropped to his knees and began to pray and give thanks. And as he saw the car that he had owned and the car that it had become. The thing about transformation when you get right down to it is, in a way, the car was the same. It was still the car that his brother gave him, but it wasn't the same. And I want to talk now not about cars, but I want to talk about you and me because what we need as human beings is we don't need tweaking. And we need more than self-improvement. We need transformation. We need God to transform our lives, and that is exactly what he does. And what we're going to discover in the talk briefly today is we're going to discover that just as that car had to go through three stages of transformation, being received, the process of transformation, and then that glorious moment when it rolled out of the shop, you and I, according to the Bible, go through those same three stages of transformation. Let's take the first stage now, because the first stage of transformation happens in an instant. It happens the moment that you and I invite Jesus Christ to come into our lives. For some of you, it happened here at New Spring. It was at the end of a service, and I prayed a prayer, and you prayed with me. And, you know, angels didn't sing in heaven, I guess, and fireworks didn't go off, at least not inside the building. But you, you prayed a prayer, and you went into this first stage of transformation, which is simply this, God accepting us into his family. I want to read something to you from the Bible. Interestingly, you know, just like a Hummer is an unlikely vehicle for a transformation, I want to read to you 
some verses that were written by a guy that if we, if we really looked at his life, we would say he was an unlikely person for transformation. His name is Paul. And I want to read what Paul has to say about this first stage of transformation, which is accepting Jesus. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That just blows religion right out the door because religion says that Jesus came into the world to pat religious people on the head. But listen to this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If Jesus had a mission statement, it would be, I came into the world to save sinners, and I'm a sinner, and I'm glad about that. You know, you say, somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't have any issues in my life. Well, I do, and I'm glad that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But now look at this. Paul said, I'm the worst of them all. It could be that someone's here this morning and you're saying, Mark, I just don't know if God can transform me. You just don't know how bad my life is messed up. Well, this guy said he was the worst, and God let him put it in the Bible. I mean, you talk about something being codified. You talk about something being verified. Paul is writing. God is letting him write a piece of the Bible. And Paul said, I was the worst. Now, you and I might have issues, but we're not the worst. And if God could do something in Paul's life, God could do something in your life. If God could do something for this guy, he could help me. I mean, here's the thing. Just, you know, the nature of the show that we talked about is to take old ratty cars and transform them. Basically, that's what Jesus is saying. It is, it is my purpose here to take people who are sinners and flawed and to bring them in a relationship with God. And Paul said, I was the worst. He was so bad that God actually changed his name. His previous name had been Saul, and God changed him, transformed his name to Paul. Just so that you will know what he means by being the worst. In the early days of the church, not long after Jesus arose from the grave, the church was getting started, and people were beginning to worship God through Jesus, just like you are today. Paul was a young lawyer, and in those days, the religious elite, had a lot of power. I mean, Rome ruled the world, but Rome didn't really care so much about local government as long as taxes were paid and there were no riots. And these days, the, the, the religious establishment ruled everything. And Paul, being a young lawyer within that establishment, Paul's goal was simply to stamp out Jesus Christ from the face of the earth and anybody who followed him. He had gotten authority to arrest anybody who was a Christ follower. For instance, if you could transport back into the first century, just for coming to worship today, what, what Paul could have done is he could have arrested you. He could have arrested you and your husband, you and your wife, left your kids in a hot car, taken you off to jail, to rot in jail with, with, with no due process, no rights or anything. That's what he was doing in the first century. And when you read Acts chapter 7, you will read about a young man who preached a sermon. His name was Stephen. And, and the the message that Stephen preached about Jesus was so infuriating to a lot of people who heard at the religious establishment, they wanted his execution. And the, the method of execution by the religious elite in those days was stoning. They would throw rocks at a person until that person was dead, until they beat the life out of him. But of course, they had to have it all legal. By the way, isn't it awful? Isn't it strange how mean religion can be? They had to have some official to sign off on it. You know who signed off on it? This guy that we know as Paul. Now, as a Hummer is an unlikely vehicle for a transformation, we all have to agree that Saul or Paul here is very unlikely because this is the guy that wants to stamp Christianity out. And yet, we know this man as the one whom God used to write 13 books out of the New Testament, take three missionary journeys, start churches all over the known world, and be perhaps the greatest influence, influence for Christianity other than Jesus himself. 
But look at what he said. I am the worst of them all, verse 16. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul kind of saw himself as a showroom vehicle. In other words, if God could help this guy, it was a demonstration of his patience. And God could help you and me. Now, what happens in this phase of transformation? Well, first of all, as I said a few moments ago, it is a miracle. It's something God does for us, and it happens instantaneously. I was eight eight years old on a playground in my school in, in suburb of Fort Worth, Texas, when I prayed to receive Jesus. I was getting a drink in the water fountain. I've been playing. It was recess time. And I've been playing. And I bent over the water fountain. And just as I did, my dad's message from the day before just started going through my mind. My dad had preached the day before that if you would ask Jesus, he would forgive you of all your sin. I was a really precocious kid. I really was a mess. I had a long rap sheet with God, I assure you, at eight. And it just sounded like such a marvelous deal that God would forgive me of all my sin. And I remember bending over the water fountain to get a drink. And, and, and maybe if you'll forgive me a little metaphorical stuff here. I bent over to get a drink of physical water and I got a drink of living water. Because I invited Jesus Christ to come into my life. That was the first stage of transformation. At that moment, God accepted me. And this is how God accepts us. God accepts us just as we are. This is what's all screwed up about religion. Religion says make changes and God will accept you. No, the Bible teaches us you come to Jesus just as you are as a sinner. Remember, that's why Jesus came into the world. And you invite him to become Lord and Savior. And that is something he does for you, not something that you do for him. At that moment, God adopts you into his family. He washes away all your sins, past, present, and future. He gives you the assurance that you're going to live forever. All of that is what the Bible calls the gift of everlasting life. That's what takes place in the first stage of transformation. God receives you, and nothing can ever cause God to kick you out of his family. Nothing. Many of us have been at that moment. Like I say, maybe it happened when you were a child. Maybe it happened in a church experience. Perhaps it happened at a youth camp. Maybe it happened, you know, like for me. Maybe you were just out somewhere, and and the knowledge of God's grace just came into your life, and you're saying, yeah, I want that. But how many of us have begun to, like, understand that now we have a little bit of a contradiction going on? I have a new status, I have a new relationship with God, but I'm not everything I want to be, and I know I'm not everything God wants me to be. That's when the second phase of transformation takes place. Because see, the first one is instantaneous, happens in a moment. The second phase of transformation goes from the moment you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior until the time comes for your life to end down here on this earth. And it is a progressive kind of thing in which God grows us. Now, I want to take you to the Bible this morning, and I want to show you some verses. that These are kind of like eating lobster. You have to work a little bit to get the meat out, but it's really good when you get it, okay? Because we're going to see how God transforms us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Okay, what's it talking about there? Well, you know the people are looking for the next person to sleep with, looking for the next way to, to get some possession. The world counts important looking for a way to get more influence, more mojo, more power in the world. God says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you. Well, now, this is interesting because over here in this first phase of transformation, I just invite Jesus Christ to come into my life, and he does it all. But now during this phase, I've got a whole new instruction. The Bible is saying, let God 
transform you. In other words, God wants to do a progressive work in my life. I can either reject that work or I can accept that work. Well, how does God transform me? Look at this. By changing the way you think. See, I can accept Jesus Christ, but I still have a lot of the old system, the old way of thinking. God wants to change the way I think. And, and, and he's not trying to brainwash me. He's just trying to teach me to think like he thinks. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 55. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. As much higher as the heaven is than the earth, that's how much higher God's thoughts are than our thoughts. And so God wants me to learn to think like he thinks. What does he think? God thinks thoughts of love. God thinks thoughts of grace. God thinks thoughts of joy. God thinks thoughts of peace. God God thinks thoughts of sacrifice. And he wants me to, to learn that way of thinking. And here's the cool thing. What we just read is, Paul said, let God do that. Let God have his work in your life. Because when you do let him change your thinking, then you're going to know what God's will is. You're going to know how to live your life. Wow. I want to take you to one of the most difficult verses in the Bible, and yet it's one of the greatest. And I've been trying to communicate this for years, and I always mess up. And I'm sure I'm going to do it again this morning. This is my fourth time this weekend. It's a challenging verse, and you almost have to know an Old Testament story before you can understand what Paul is trying to say to his New Testament audience. You remember back in the Old Testament, Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt into Canaan, the Promised Land. And it should have just taken days, but the Israelites choked at the moment of destiny, and they didn't believe God and didn't trust God. They wound up going in circles in the desert for 38 years. All this time, they were being led by this guy named Moses, who was a great man. And God had the kind of relationship with Moses that he would never have with anybody again except maybe his son, Jesus. Because Moses and God talked to each other. In fact, God said, nobody but Moses has had this kind of relationship with him. But now when Moses would go up on the mountain to talk with God and get instructions from God, Moses would only hear a voice. You know what it's like when you have this ongoing relationship with somebody and you're getting to know them better and better? There's a side of you that just like wants to know more about them. And so after all these conversations with God, uh, Moses went up to talk to God one day and after they they had had their exchange, uh, Moses said, God, there's just uh, one more thing. I'd like to see you. I mean, I hear you, but I want to see you. And God is saying, Moses, that's just not possible because I am so great and you're human, and if you were to try to look at me, it would blow you up. It would disintegrate you. I mean, I'm, I'm adding words to God, but that's basically what God is saying. Moses, you're just not, you're not able to handle this. And, but, but God is so cool. <laughs> you know, think about it. It's, it's a human being that just said, I want to see you. And God said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. You, you can't look at me. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like put you in the, in the mouth of a cave, in a cliff, and I'm going to put my hand over the opening of the cave, and I'm going to pass by, and then when the backside of the trail of my glory is still out there, long after I've gone, I'm going to take my hand off, and you can just see the, the trail of my glory. And Moses said, cool, that's not in the Bible, but I know he said it. <laughs> and God did exactly that, Whew, passed by the mountain, took his hand off. Wow, Moses gets whammed with this glory that's just the backside of God's glory, just the trail of the glory. The only thing was, Moses was transformed. When he came down from the mountain, he was still radiating, and the people were saying, oh no, would you put something over your face? Would you put a veil over your face? 
Now, 1,500 years later, Paul, the guy we've talked about, is writing to a church. He's writing to a church just like you and me. And he is trying to explain to them how this transformation takes place. Now, we know this is a miracle, this first stage where God saves us. That's an instantaneous miracle. But now we're talking about this lifelong transformation in which God is teaching us to think like he thinks. God is making us more like himself. Paul is now about to use that Old Testament story to teach people like you and me. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. But we all... With unveiled face, and you know now he's talking about Moses put a veil over his face. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That means being transformed to be like Jesus. From glory to glory. In other words, from a a lower stage of Christ-likeness to a greater stage of Christ-likeness. Now, just to make sure I can give you the best explanation that I can of this text, what Paul is saying is, look, as Christ followers, we're like looking at Jesus, like we would look in a mirror. And as we stay in the presence of Jesus, just like when Moses was in the presence of God and began to radiate God's glory, what Paul was saying is the more we stay in the presence of Jesus, we look in the mirror, and instead of seeing ourselves, we start seeing something that looks like Jesus. He wasn't talking about the physical image of Jesus. He was talking about the character of Jesus. Let me go back to Moses for a moment because I think this will help us. You know, it must have been an incredible moment. Moses came down from the mountain, still radiating. People said, oh, would you put a veil over your face? And after a while, the Bible says that it, the, the light began to lessen. And when that happened, I know personality types pretty well. There were some, you know, some people always want to know, how'd that happen? How'd you do that? And I'm sure that there was somebody who came up to Moses and said, hey, Moses, that was the coolest thing in the world, man. When you came down from that mountain, you were just shining. How, what'd you do to do, get that? I mean, how'd you get that look? Did you do something? Did you promise God to do something? And Moses would have said, no, I didn't do anything. It was just who I was with. That's exactly what Paul is trying to tell the church at Corinth. You get Christ-likeness not because you do some sort of community service for God. You get Christ-likeness by being in his presence, being around him. I mean, you become like Jesus not because of something you do, but by hanging with him. Because he has, just like God had glory and light that Moses caught, Jesus has glory. And the Bible says that when we're around him, God transforms us not from what we do, but just by being with him. And it's from glory to glory. It's from lesser levels of Christ-likeness to greater levels of Christ-likeness. Let's talk practical terms now. You're saying, Mark, you're kind of weirding me out about like being with Jesus. I've never been with him that I know of. Well, here's the thing. Anytime you are with, anytime you are praying, you're with Jesus. Anytime you're reading scripture, you are with Jesus. When you're worshiping like you're worshiping here today, you are with Jesus. Every time, and this is, this is, this is the most practical thing I can think, for, for, to, 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 wait, I can put this. Our worlds today, we are, our attention span is so pulled by the technology and the things of this world. Spending time with God means we block everything else out and we give God time in our lives. Whether it's through prayer or through worship or reading the Bible. And when we do, God begins to transform us. Junk disappears and power and energy and life appears. I don't know if, there's probably no one else like me here today, but I can tell you I get frustrated with myself during this phase. 
I mean, in phase one, I don't get frustrated at all because that's a miracle that God does for me. God forgives me, makes me his child, gives me the promise of everlasting life. It's a gift. But it's the second phase where I get frustrated because I can take two steps forward and one step back. Or I can think I've got something down in my life of following God, but then I fail. In fact, some of you may know what it's like to wonder, how could a person like me have ever really accepted Christ? But hey, that's the struggle that we have. Let me read a verse to you that's very important to me. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, this guy Paul, who God transformed, said, there's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day that Christ Jesus appears. Isn't it good to know that God will never, forget, never give up on you? That even though we may stumble, we may not live up to the expectations that we have for ourselves and certainly not the expectations that God has for us, God will continue to keep us in the shop until we reach the third stage of transformation. Let me read this and I'll be finished. Paul would write, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Well, I'm excited about that because what that means is over here in this first stage when as an eight-year-old boy, I invited Jesus Christ to come into my life. God accepted me and received me and gave me the gift of everlasting life. But for all these years, God has been working in my life to transform me. But he's never going to give up. And finally, there's going to come a day when Jesus appears. And when Jesus comes back, God is going to transform everything that's not ready, everything that's not right. I mean, I'm excited about getting a new body. If you're 20 today, you're probably not excited about that at all. And, and, and enjoy it, and, and I just, I don't want to rain on your prayer or anything, I just want to tell you that it's not going to last. You want some really good pictures, some video of you doing athletic stuff and all that? Guys, just take a really good picture, just have a picture taken from the top of your hair. Because it won't be long before you're about 30 years old and you'll start singing a hymn to your hair, God be with you till we meet again, or something like that. Um, <laughs> So I, I'm just, 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 just kind of kidding with you and everything, but I, I, at my age, the idea of getting a new body is a great thought. It's cool. And I'm, I'm excited about that because God's going to do some body work on me and you, and we're going to have a body that will never get old. Well, i got to tell you what I'm most excited for. I'm so excited because on that moment when that final transformation comes, I'm going to lose the dark side of Mark that I hate so much. The part of me that's prone to anxiety and fear. The part of me that's prone to anger the part of me that's prone to disappointment and failure. Wow. <laughs> There's going to be a day when God rolls me out of the shop and I'm going to be everything that God designed me to be. And that's what God does. He takes people that the world would look at and say, we have no value. And he receives us and he works on us. And someday we're going to roll into heaven and we're going to get on our knees and we're going to look at what God has done for us and through us and in us. And we're going to give God thanksgiving that he transformed us into being like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help those of us who are in this middle stage of transformation to not resist you, but to, to, to receive 
your work in our lives so that we can learn to think like you think and we can know your will in our lives. And Father, I pray for someone here today who maybe has gotten bad news from the doctor and, and even now people, the doctors are starting to talk about days and months and I pray that you help them to realize that the best is yet to come. But Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never even had the first stage, the first step of transformation, I pray that right now in these next few moments that it might be that time. Today might be that day for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray for one more moment and I'll be finished. If you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I've, I've tried tweaking in my life and I've tried self-improvement, but I've never really given my life to God. I have the best news in the world for you. Man, you can, you can experience what I experienced when I was eight. It's a gift. I mean, it's not something that you do. It's something God does for you. It's a transformation miracle that he does. All that God asks from you is to believe, to put confidence in the reality that Jesus died for your sins, to put confidence in the reality that he arose from the grave, that he did for you what you cannot do for yourself. And, and really all he wants is a big yes. I, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, very similar to the one I prayed when I was eight. It's not the words, it's God's just looking for a yes. I mean, you won't have to twist Jesus' arm to save you. Remember, he came to save sinners. That's his purpose. I assure you, he's leaning over from heaven with his ear cocked toward you. Would you be open to giving God a chance? I'm going to pray this prayer slowly so that you can think about the lines because what matters is what you mean, not what you say. It's, it's your heart. So I want you to be able to think about these words. But if you're ready to invite Jesus for that first stage of transformation, let's do that right now. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. But your word says Jesus came to save sinners. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me. Make me God's child and start your work of transformation in me. In Jesus' name, amen.